Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Well, amen, amen. If you didn't receive a message card when you came in, uh, you can raise your hand right quick, and uh, they'll help you there in the back. Everyone receive a message card, maybe a few of you. Just raise your hand right quick. And also, I want to let you know, um, just just until we get a, the kind of the, the hangover, the groove of it, if you are a smartphone user, I can't help you if you're a dumb phone user, but if you're a smartphone user, you can go to your Android or your iPhone and click on Uversion your Bible app, and you'll click on the left there, hit events, and our, the message will pop up right in front of you. Just hit Dwelling Place Church there. And it's just a way that you can share it and also go back and study throughout the week and maybe review what God has said to you. I tell you, the, uh, the dullest pencil is always sharper than the sharpest mind. Uh, it always is. So when you write down and you, you write down notes and what God says, uh, for so much of my life, I didn't do that. And when I did, I tell you, what began happening was it created an expectancy for God to speak to me. And I have a lot of people that I've taught maybe through the years of listening to God's voice, and they're saying, well, I'm so scared if I write the wrong thing. Well, big deal. Big deal if you write what you're saying and not what he's saying. The reality of it is when you write, you create an expectancy for God to speak. God wants to speak to us. You know what the Bible said? He said to pray without ceasing. Do you know what prayer is? Monologue or dialogue? It's dialogue. So if God said pray without ceasing, God says to us, I will talk to you without ceasing. My intention is to communicate to you. That's why he said seven times in two chapters in Revelation 2 and 3, who has ears to hear, let him hear. So it seems like to me that the problem is not God speaking, but it's God's people hearing. It's us listening, that God desires to speak to us. And I believe that God is going to speak to you today. I really do. Uh, I, have, I consider it such a privilege and an honor to speak into the life of this congregation um, because uh, I, it's, it's so dear to my heart. And, um, and, and as I was kind of getting ready for this week, I was originally going to preach from 1 Peter chapter 4. As we geared up for this series on Revelation, I want to talk quite a bit about Matthew 24 and the end times. And, and I just felt like this is the message God wanted me to share. I've been waiting about six months for the right time to speak this truth into our congregation. And to me, this feels like the right time. And so I think that God, I know God wants to speak to us. And uh, as he speaks to our hearts, you know, I pray that uh, it continues just to bear fruit. You know, at Antioch, if you read the book of Acts, in the book of, Antioch, in the book of Acts, the Bible says it was at Antioch where the disciples were first called Christians. I've been praying over the last few months that we would have another Antioch experience in American Christianity where all Christians would be called disciples. <laughs> we need a reversal. Antioch is where all Christians became disciples. We need a day and age. We live in a day and age where all Christians need to be called disciples, students, followers, learners, apprentices, so to speak, of Jesus Christ. And this message is kind of coming out of that burn today. I love uh, science. I do, I do. Anyone who knows me knows that uh, I love science. I, it was my intention to be a pediatric neurologist. That was the goal when I was uh, 16 years old. Ben Carson was the man. I read his book, Gifted Hands, at about 11 years old. And Ben Carson became the figure in my mind. And so uh, Patch Adams, one of my top three movies, you know, I love, I love the, the, the whole field of medicine. So you can imagine as a pastor, I like doing hospital visits, okay? I love being around hurting people because that's where God's grace shows up the most. I know that sounds sadistic. I love being around funerals, not in the sense that funerals, but I love because God's grace is so powerful in the midst of a funeral. I love being a places of brokenness where God's grace is so strong. 
And uh, for me, it kind of, it filters in with, you know, Lord, are you going to call me to do medical missions in the future? Pastor Chad says all the time, you're just going to have to crucify and kill those oxen, right? You're not going to be a doctor anymore. And so I've turned from that, right? But God called me to be a pastor, vocational minister when I was 18 years old. Um, Previous to that, I took a a course in organic chemistry. Now, organic chemistry was not my favorite course. I was more of a biology person. But in organic chemistry, we used to spend our afternoons, AP chemistry, making chemicals. And the quantitatives of those chemicals were so minute that at the beginning of the series of experiments, the first thing you had to do is you had to check your instruments. In other words, scientists call it recalibration of the tools. And if you didn't recalibrate all the instruments, then what would happen if you failed the instruments, if the instruments, or you failed to recalibrate them, the instruments could be off just one single degree. And if they were off one single degree, the entire experiment was useless. It was a waste of time because it was a deception. It was not true, not an accurate reading. Well, this, in a spiritual sense, is what I would call a recalibration message. This is the one where we have to make sure our our tools are correctly aligned. This is, a, this is a message where we're checking our instruments, if you will. And if we don't get these things right, that which we're going to talk about today, the things that are very basic, then, then the rest of it is really a waste of time. Because this is the way it should be. If you've ever walked into your bathroom and you had a set of scales and you stepped on your scale, if you don't make sure that the scale is first set to zero, then you're deceiving yourself and your weight. You know, somebody on weight loss plan, they back it up to like negative five before they step on it or negative ten, you know. I've lost 10 pounds. Well, you're deceiving yourself. And much in the same way, I think in our Christian walk, so many people do the same. They deceive themselves because they don't check the instruments. They don't check the basics. The prophet was said, I want you to get a plumb line and I want you to run it down the wall. And then you need to step back and see how close your life is in relationship to that truth. It's a recalibration message. So I want to talk about some very Basic things that we just every now and again got to talk through. And I figured July 4th weekend would be the best time. Let's pray. Father, in these moments we have, I thank you for the privilege. I sense today in my heart for this church a sense of destiny, a real sense of destiny. God, as Esther said, she was appointed in the royal palace for such a time as this. God, I feel real destiny in this church for this year. I do, God, such expectation. And Father, I pray that the responsibility and the privilege that I feel for What you've spoken would come through this message so that the people would feel it. That they would feel and sense and hear your heart, God, and what you desire for your church in this hour, God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said? And my science teacher, my organic chemistry teacher, also my biology teacher in 10th grade, had a skeleton. And the skeleton always, most of the time, I should say, stayed in a box. Of course, you had the little hanging hook, but... Most of the time, this skeleton stayed in a box. And if I'm really honest, it wasn't actually a full skeleton. It was a half a skeleton. It had a half a mandible, half a skull, right? It had half his bones. And the idea was that one femur looks like the other femur. One tibia looks like the other tibia. One radius looks like the other radius. One ulna looks like the other ulna. And so the idea was that that you only need to study half of the skeleton to understand the whole skeleton. But how many of you know that's not how God has made us? He has actually given us two femurs. He's given us two tibias. He's given us two clavicles, right? Because physiologically, I'm talking about even at the basic level of humanity, physically, we actually require balance in our lives. God has caused and created us to require balance. And what I've learned in ministry is that humanity is much like my science teacher's skeleton. 
We tend to concentrate, if you study history, on one side rather than both sides at the same time. We are highly unbalanced people, if you really think about it. In fact, it's like one generation grew up for the last 30 years, and and holiness was all about legalistic righteousness and outward adornment. And so now a generation of millennials came forward, and it's like they've just discovered the grace message for the first time. And now all these these teachers are just all talking about grace. We are unable sometimes to grasp both extremes, right? We talk all about grace without any reference to truth. We talk, all about, uh, we talk all about love without any reference to righteousness. And you can't do this. This is not how God, God is not a lopsided God. He's just as much just as he is loving, right? We see this in Romans chapter 1 from the outset of that great book. It, it, we talk about the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ without ever referring to his divinity. And in life, God has caused us to need both extremes. We need what, I'm, what I would say are the extremes of truth. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, he said it this way. You'll see it in a card in front of you. He said, uh, truth has two wings. It's what enables truth to fly. The Bible would say it. Solomon would add to, uh, excuse me, Tozer would add to Solomon. In Ecclesiastes 7, 18, he said, it's good to grasp, notice this, the one and not let go of the other. Look at this scripture, if you throw it up there. It's good to grasp the one, not let go of the other. And notice this. He says, the man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Now, if you take Tozer and Solomon and put those statements together, what he's saying is the man, the woman, who fears God will avoid all extremes by grasping both of them. You avoid extremes by grasping and holding on to both of them. It's almost like the old school Gumby, if you you know what Gumby is, the green Gumby man. Your arms are stretched both Way. So if you want to understand Jesus, you must understand his humanity and you must also understand his divinity. You must understand the free will of man and at the same time the sovereignty of God. You have to embrace both. G.K. Chesterton in his book Orthodoxy, of whom I would recommend that book to every believer, he said these words. He said, Christianity got over the difficulty of combining furious opposites by keeping them both, and here it is, and keeping them both furiously. Held on to both of them. What I want to do this morning is I want to talk about two extremes, major extremes, that we need to get down in order for our body to be healthy. In order for our church to be healthy, in order for the body of Christ, we're talking about the ecclesial body, in order for us to be healthy and do and balance the way that God wants us to be, we have to talk about these extremes. Now the text text we're going to read is Ezekiel 37, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. If you have your Bible, I'm reading from the New International Version today. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. The Spirit of the Lord, speaking to Ezekiel, in the midst of no doubt, this was a time when Israel was in captivity. And this is the spiritual state of Israel. Now, you got to understand something. As a Jew, you can't touch dead bodies. It would be a no-no with a vow. You couldn't do that. And now Ezekiel is lifted up by the hand of the Lord. He's brought into a valley of ankle-deep bones, decaying people. This, of course, is a foreshadowing of the passage in Revelation that we'll read about over the next few weeks, where in the end time, or the day of the Lord, when the Lord actually returns and we are following him on our horses, and the Bible says the Antichrist and all the nations of the earth that he has deceived are fighting or standing there in the battle of Megiddo, that the, the rider who is faithful and true will open his mouth and he will slay down every person who's gathered against him. That's all he does, open his mouth, and literally with the breath of God, the breath of our King Jesus, all of them are slain. And the Bible says that the 
the blood flows to the horse's bridle. Five feet rivers of deep of blood will flow through that valley of people that have been slain. And the Bible says that their bodies are laying there. We set up an earth, Jesus sets up an earthly kingdom, and, and now all of the birds, they begin to devour. He calls them, the Bible said in Revelation, from the north, south, east, and west. Which, you, of course, why do, why do birds migrate south? Who's actually telling them to migrate? Of course, the Lord is. He's doing this, right? And this is how the Lord speaks to his creation. And so he calls them, and they come and feed or gorge themselves on all this flesh. This is a foreshadowing of that. And now Ezekiel's in the middle of a, a valley of, of people and the bones are all around him. You gotta imagine this picture for a minute. And the Bible says he led me, verse two, back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry, they were cracked. And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? And I said, sovereign Lord, here's a good answer, you alone know. And he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you. You will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you. You will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. Look at this beautiful passage. Bones began to rattle. Tibia touched a femur. The, the, the knee bone, the patella began to hit bone on bone. And I looked. And tendons and flesh, notice this appeared on them and skin covered them but there was no breath in them and he said to me prophesy to the breath prophesy son of man and say to it this is what the sovereign lord says come breathe prophesy son of man and say to it breathe he says from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live so Ezekiel said I prophesied as he the spirit of the Lord commanded me and breath entered them came to life and stood up on their feet here it is a vast army everybody say a vast army now if we are going to be a vast army the vast army that God's called us to be we must embrace both extremes this message today is called bones and breath Bones and breath. The other way we could say that is internal strength and external power. Bones and breath. It's about internal strength, but also external power. If we're going to be raised up to be the vast army in the church of Jesus Christ that Ezekiel 37 describes, if God's going to create what he wants out of our church, out of our community, out of our church locally and locally and globally, if God is going to create the army ready to fight, then, then, then we're going to have to have excellent internal strength, but we also have to have vibrant external power. We have to have bones, and we got to have breath. So many times when we talk to leaders, if we get leaders together, if you're a part of a businessman and you've been a part of you know, quarterly meetings or your boss brings you together or you're in retail and they come together, whenever they do type of leadership investment, we talk to leaders, what we normally always talk about is just internal strength. We talk about bones. We talk about systems. We talk about structures. We talk about management. We talk about how things can become more productive. We, can, we talk about the internal disciplines. But we don't talk a bit about the breath of God that we desperately require. In the church, when pastors go to conferences, it's all about all the bones. It's all about the structures. It's all about the things that yield the most fruits. And then we come to the church and we have a worship night, all night prayer, and we talk just about the breath of God. And we don't talk about the internal workings of God's spirit in people's life. We don't talk about the character of Christ being filled. We just talk about the breath. And so there we are on opposite extremes, right? We, we jump from revival to revival, hoping that one day God's going to somehow zap us and we'll quit looking at pornography. But normally that won't happen because God says, you're going to have to turn from sin yourself. And I will put my spirit in you and, and you need some strength in your bones, but some, oh, so many times what we do is we, 
We avoid, or we, we don't avoid both extremes because we don't grasp both of them and hold them furiously. So I want to talk very simply today of qualities of bones and qualities of breath. And then what I want to do is I want to apply it to your situation, and then I want to apply it to my situation, and then we're going to apply it to the church as a whole. Number one, quality of internal strength or quality of bones. Here it is. Bones are a part of a skeleton. Bones are a part of a skeleton. Now, Craig, please stop insulting my intelligence. This is simple. I told you it's simple. This is what we call a recalibration message, okay? This is recalibration. Bones are a part of a skeleton. In other words, you are not created for independence. You are actually created for dependence, now, we don't like that in America. We have a day that we celebrate our independence. We love independence so much. We shoot fireworks all night long for five days up to that night. And two, three in the morning, right? And we legalize them in Georgia. And now they're going, but listen, boy, I didn't know last night what happened. You know, they, they said in St. Louis, Missouri, I have a friend who's a pastor there. And, and, and he said in the middle of the night, you know, it's like two in the morning. Y'all know what happens in Ferguson. He said, you know, his, his wife is up like, you know, breastfeeding and, and nursing the baby. And it's like two in the morning. You don't know if it's gunshots or if it's, if it's Roman candles. You know what I'm saying? But, 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 but what happens is in America, we love our independence, right? If the, if the mark of natural maturity is independence from your parents, Parents, the mark of spiritual maturity is dependence completely on God. And see, what happens sometimes in raising our kids, we forget that the primary goal of parenting, we would say Christian parenting, the primary goal of Christian parenting is to, is to raise children who are independently dependent on God. But when we raise them with independence, they become so independent of mom and dad and independent of mom and dad's resourcing that they also become independent of a church. They also become independent of people of God. They also become independent of other relationships, and that's not how God's created you. Why? Because bones are a part of a skeleton. We got too many 23-year-old femurs trying to jump down the road, and you can't do it without a patella and a tibia. We got too many 24-year-old ankle bones trying to do something, but you are a part of a skeleton, and you are created for dependence. You are created for the body of Christ. You are baptized and belong to other people. There is no such thing in the New Testament as an unchurched Christian. That is an abnormality. Why? Because you belong to other people. You are baptized into a body. You are a part of a skeleton. And if Melissa is a bicep, she can't do any pulling if there's no lower radius and ulna that's attached to that elbow so she can do her part in the body of Christ. And if she's a bicep, but she don't like it and don't accept it and is trying to be a quadricep, she can work her little bicep in the quadricep motion all she wants. But when it comes time for the body of Christ to pick up a hurting person, we ain't going to pick up the person because she won't be her bicep. So we have to understand from the outset that bones are a part of a skeleton. You're a part of a body. You're created for dependence. You're created to interact and to be close to one another. We're called to work together. We aren't called to go off and do our own thing and to do our own vision. Yes, God gives vision. Yes, God gives vision personally. But understand this, folks. When we go off and do our own thing, not only do we disempower ourselves, but we disempower or disengage or diminish the body. Think about this. If I took every person in here and, and, and said for your family, write down your top three goals or ambitions as a church or as a family. If you were honest, I think the reason why so many of our churches are so struggling is because we don't have the power of a shared dream. If you took the top three goals, most people's families' goals in the top three is not the vision of their local church. 
And then we wonder why our local church doesn't move forward. Because not even in the top three priorities of my family is what? To see the kingdom of God advance. If you would get the vision for your local church in your heart, do you realize your city would be changed? If every person who attended church this morning got down in their hearts the vision, what is ours? Manifesting Christ in many ways to many people. That's our vision. That's our picture. That's our expected end. What's our mission? What? To gather people to Jesus Christ. Lead them to biblical maturity for the multiplication of believers leaders and churches if we got the people of God to have the power of a shared dream then can you imagine how forcefully the gospel and the kingdom of God would advance in our cities but we're so independent in America look at the homes at the turn of the 20th century 1900 all of the architecture of the homes had huge front porches and no back porches because people interact with one another look at the turn of the 21st century we have huge back porches and tall fences and no front porches because we want independence that's what's killing the church. That's why seatbed of Christianity in Central America and Asia is spreading. Why? Because the gospel spreads like wildfire in communal societies. We are created for dependence. We are created for connectivity. Bones are a part of a skeleton. And there's so many churches around the world where every department in the church has a vision, you know? And every person has a personal vision. Can I remind you, once again, in our church, there's one vision. And if you're gonna be a part of the heart and the soul of the church, there isn't a youth vision, there's not a DP kids vision, there's not a DP students vision, there isn't a women's vision, there isn't an outreach vision, there is one vision and we are part of one skeleton. And if we can come around to understand that one vision then all of a sudden the body begins to advance it's not rocket science folks but it is what makes it work exodus 25 40 notice that the pattern was given to the leader moses on the mountain and he says see that you make them according to the pattern shown you on your time with god i just used my own translation but that's what's happened he met with god on the mountain and notice this he comes back down and notice god showed the pattern to the leader and then the followers followed the leader's pattern now folks this is not dictatorial totalitarian, despotic leadership, Hitler-esque leadership. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about pastors and leaders have all the vision and everybody just submit. No, no, I'm talking about, here's what I've understood, is that though vision is given from top down, guess what? Creativity and ideas are always given from bottom up. And it's when the ideas and the creativity begin to flow from bottom up under the vision or umbrella that the church advances. So you could be like King Smith, who this last week went again to the movie theater, and they took cards, and Courtney joined them, and, and they just prayed for people. Can I pray for you as they were going into a movie? It, the, the ideas of, of outreach and ministry are, are creative and as endless as the mind of God. You could be that way. You, if you want to minister to the disenfranchised and marginalized, oh, let us know. I'll, I'll, I'll build the bridge for you to start going into the, the pods and the detention facilities and start ministering to people. Why? Because if it's manifesting Christ in many ways to many people, it's under our vision. We want Christ to be seen. We want Christ to be manifested in our community. Tomorrow, we're going to manifest Christ with smiles on our face, interacting with little children at tables under our tent as we do crafts. And manning and inflatable, having fun with kids. This is what God's attempting to do. This is what makes good churches become great churches. This is what makes the kingdom of God be advanced in local context. It's when we understand we are a part of a skeleton. And so many people and so many churches are rushing to do their own thing and vision, and they miss the point. You're called to actually be a part of something so much grander than yourself. And we all want that, right? We all want that. On a personal note, can I just tell you real quick, long before I was, I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, my wife and I, we moved from Chattanooga, Tennessee to, to Gainesville, Georgia, to serve at a church called Free Chapel under a pastor. His name was Jensen Franklin. He was a pastor who was actually very pivotal for me to come to Christ in the beginning. And, 
And then long before we moved from Gainesville, Georgia, back to Cleveland, Tennessee, to serve at another church that I was unbeknownst to me called North Cleveland Church of God. And then long before I moved here last May, last really the beginning of June, almost it's right at a year, a little over a year, um, God gave me a vision. And listen to me. It's only in submission to the vision of the ministry center was where I first served. It's only when my vision was in submission to the to the vision of Free Chapel, which is the second place I served. And it was only when my vision that God gave me was in submission to the third vision, which was North Cleveland, that my own vision began to come to fruition. It was only in the submission of my personal vision to the vision of the church that my own vision came. In other words, I had to die to my own agenda to see the vast army fulfilled. I had to, it's, it's, it's only in submission of the vision that God gave me that my vision began to be fulfilled. Let me give you an idea. I'm gonna keep it very brief because of time. It's a long story, but I'll give you the short version. In April of 2004, I was sitting in my bedroom, and uh, I was enrolled at UTK to be medicine, to do medicine. I was actually going to be chemistry major, maybe biology. I hadn't yet decided, but I was going to go three years. My fourth year, I was going to move to Memphis, be in, grad, uh, be in medical school, and, and do the tandem of my fourth year of undergrad and first year of med school at the same time. And who knows, by that point, by 30, I would probably be practicing now. And I'm in my bedroom, and the Lord starts speaking to me as I was reading my Bible about calling me to ministry. Now, I had a lot of, uh, a lot of excuses because I felt so unqualified. as the first-generation Christian in my family. I said, I have no legacy of faith to be built on. I don't even know what it means, God, to be a pastor. What do you call another pastor and tell them you're called to be a pastor? I mean, what do you, how do you do this? You go to school, you know? I mean, I'm just totally unqualified to do this. And the Lord gives me a vision. And then I fall asleep. Now, I'm not given to visions. I'm really not. If you're new today, you're thinking maybe this flake guy who tells visions each Sunday. I don't. I've actually only had two or three visions in my entire spiritual life. But this was a vision. And I had a dream. It started with a dream that I opened my eyes in the morning. It was a vision. And God gave me this vision where I saw myself standing and teaching. It was at least 20,000 people. I don't know how many people it was. And everyone was sitting down in front of me. And I thought, that was weird. Because again, I was going to be a doctor. Just a fraction. Just a, If you've ever moved up. Uh, a, a photo album and like flick through real quick and the pictures, it was like that. Like just one, just, a, just a quick picture. And I thought, well, that's weird. Fraction of a second. Well, God showed me. I held on to it, treasured in my heart. But then I joined a church called the Ministry Center in Chattanooga and I didn't call somebody and say, hey, God gave me this vision that I'm gonna preach. And you know, I didn't do that. I just said, that was weird. I don't even know what that was, God. And so I just submitted it to a local church. And for the first two years of my ministry, I just, for, you know, in a back room of a, of a church in a choir room, I met with 35, I think the largest we ever got, 35 young adults. And I just ministered to them and taught discipleship to them and ministered to them and, and cared for them. And then God called us to move to another church and we went to Atlanta. And then I submitted that vision God gave me. I didn't come to the pastor and say, well, here's the vision God's given me, although I've received that a few times from people. I, I just simply said, yes, I'm here to serve. What's the vision, God? What, 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 what has God showed here? And so I submitted that vision. Well, listen, six and a half years later, now when I received that vision, I'm only two years old in the Lord. I'm minding my own business, much like God always does, but I'm submitted to the vision. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any clue what I was doing, but I met a guy named Corey Condry. He's over all the hip-hop radio stations in Atlanta, and uh, predominantly African-American, predominantly black listeners, and um, it was no big deal, obviously, for me. I mean, but, but I was like the only white guy that was on the radio station. I started talking to him about discipleship, and he was like, I love the fire in your eyes about discipleship, and, and so I'd go down and talk on the radio. Well, he had this big campaign where it was all about winning souls in the Georgia Dome. Georgia Dome, you guys know, is about 80,000, 80, 80, 82,000, like that. And, 
and they were gonna go fill up the Georgia Dome, do half the Georgia Dome, 40,000, and they were gonna do this big night. And, you know, T.G. Jakes was coming, and, and, uh, and, and B.B. Winans and C.C. Winans and, and uh, you know, all these people. Jason Upton, he was, he was gonna be there, who was a phenomenal worship leader, who was actually the worship leader who was playing on my boom box that night because I listened to him the night that I received the vision. That's all I listened to back in the day was Jason Upton on the keyboard. And so uh, I go and meet with him, and he says, I'm going to give you a 60-second segment in the, the Georgia Dome where you can just speak to the people about discipleship. Now, that's weird because it's about a bunch, bunch of people preaching, you know, preaching the house down, you know, and then, and then little, little salt speck gets up on the stage, you know, and like, come just be disciple with us, you know. It's like, and so I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm going to do it, right? And so I, I, I go back to my pastor, and they call Jensen, and, and they ask him to preach the final part. So he's going to preach 20 minutes, and then he was going to do the altar call and bring him down to the altar. Well, I was over the altar teams taking behind the curtain on the Georgia Dome in the other end zone. And so it's Friday. The event's Saturday. And I get a phone call as I'm getting ready to go down to the Georgia Dome to get ready for the event. And my pastor, Pastor Jensen, calls and says, hey, Craig, I, I, bad news. I'm going to have to have you call Corey and just tell him I can't preach tomorrow. And I'm thinking, are you serious? Like, we're talking about thousands of people, and you're telling him, like, less than 24 hours. And I'm like, I'm the bad guy, right? So I get on the phone call, the phone, and I call Corey. I say, Corey, man, I, I don't have to tell you this, but uh, Jensen, Pastor Jensen, he, he, won't be able to, uh, he won't be able to make it tomorrow. And without hesitation, he said, oh, no big deal. He said, you'll just preach his time slot. Now, that sounds a bit funny, but I couldn't breathe for about, about 10 minutes. And I used the bathroom, I think, 53 times in the next hour. It was over 150 times by the 24 hours. I mean, I was as nervous as a termite in a yo-yo. I mean, I was, I was nervous, bad nervous, right? I mean, I had, I had no ability. I'm thinking, what in the world have I gotten myself in? So I go to the Georgia Dome, Bernice King is, you know, Martin Luther King's, and so I'm hanging backstage, getting ready. I'm, I go out and worship a little bit. I'm only 23 years old. I go back in. Dear God, please don't make me fool out of myself. Please help me. Please help. I come back out. Oh, yeah, I'm ready to pray. Oh, dear God, please. Y'all know what the leader's prayer is, right? Help, 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 help. That's a leader's prayer. I'm just, Lord, help, right? And so finally, it comes time for me to preach. It's at the end of the night. I know the people are weary. It's time for the altar call. And folks, he gives me the mic. Corey's standing next to me. I could, I could paint the picture for you because I remember it so well in my mind's eye. And I grab the microphone, and I step up the three steps onto the stage, and I, I move beyond the curtain. And when I do, instantly, I saw the exact vision God gave me six and a half years earlier. And it was extremely difficult to preach because I'm, I'm crying. And they're thinking, dude, he's that scared. Thinking, how am I going to do, you know, so I get done preaching. I just, I don't know if you've ever been like adrenaline rush. My whole body felt like it was asleep. You know, those tingling things. I'm just trying to preach, you know. And here's a picture of it, right? And I get done preaching, and it, I call for the altar call, and all these people are coming down, right, to receive Christ. And, uh, and, and usually you have to turn around and be like to the preacher, to the band, like, come on, somebody in the band, come on. But I, somebody already starts playing and starts singing. I'm thinking, what in the world? I didn't even ask. And lo and behold, as I'm sitting there preaching and these people are coming down to receive Christ, I turn around and guess who's leading worship? It's Jason Upton, who was the very one that was leading worship that night on my boombox when God gave me the vision six and a half years ago. What are you trying to say, Craig? I'm trying to tell you this, that if you will take the vision that God has given you and you'll submit it to the vision of a local church in a time that is unbeknownst to you in a way that can never happen on your own, God will cause your vision to come to fruition. This is why he births in us dreams. This is why he bursts in us visions. Why? To see his kingdom be advanced. You are a part of a skeleton. Bones are a part of a skeleton. 
Not only that, but bones, number two, have a specific place and purpose. They have a specific place and purpose. You have to make a decision that you are needed. Look at 1 Corinthians 12 and 21. Notice this. He says in this passage, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Can I just say once and for all for everybody in this church, regardless of where you come from today, can I just say with prophetic declaration, we need you. I don't know how else to say it. We need you. I don't know if you're a foot. I don't know if you're a hand. I don't know if you're a tibia. You're a clavicle. I don't know if you're a metatarsal. I don't know if you're a heel. I don't know what you are, but I'm going to tell you, you may think of yourself ill. You may think of yourself unqualified, but you did not get sent to a church so you can just say, we need you. We need you. You're needed in the body of Christ. You have latent abilities and talents that God wants to use for his kingdom. We need you. Don't ever think because you're not on a platform or you're never singing a song that you aren't noticed or you're unnoticed or you're insignificant. No, we need you. And the body of Christ needs you. That's why God didn't rapture you when he saved you. He kept you on the earth because he needs you. He desires to use you. He wants to multiply the life of Christ through you, through the baptism of his spirit. He wants to use you. He needs you. We need you. The body requires you. Just because you don't believe it doesn't mean it's not true. We need you. Before I moved in 2010 from Atlanta to North Cleveland, which was not a necessarily desirable move, I called my pastor, Pastor Jensen, and I said, uh, Pastor, I don't know what to tell you, but uh, the Lord's very clear with Meredith and I. We have to move. We're, we're going to have to leave. And uh, I didn't think that was going to be a good conversation. And he, in some sense, prophesied over me and said, you know what? I have family in Cleveland. He said, now that you've been in this church and been expanded, he said, uh, he said, North Cleveland needs you. And I thought, how stupid was that? Appreciate the pat on the back, Pastor, but that's stupid. I mean, Pastor Mitch has been there for 22 years at that time, 20 years at that time. And he's got staff. Some staff has been with him 30 years. That's just stupid. And I didn't think about it. I should have been smart enough to realize a man of God. But many years later, I moved, obviously had moved, and I was sitting in, a, in, my, in Pastor Maloney's office, uh, my senior pastor at the time. And I was sitting in his office, and we were talking about a new service we were going to start on Sunday mornings to cater to the younger generation, millennials and Gen Xers and Ys. And, and I'm sitting there talking to him, and he looks at me as we're talking about preaching to millennials, and he said these words. He said, Craig, I need you. And I just started laughing. He said, what are you laughing about? I said, because you just fulfilled a prophecy, which I didn't believe many years ago. If I could say with the same prophetic fervency and unction that Pastor Franklin spoke to me that day, if I could say it, with that same function, I would say, I need you. I need you. We, the church, need you. You're valuable. You have a purpose. You have a function right here. Right here in this city, you have a function. Why? Because bones have a specific place and purpose. They always have a purpose. There's no purposeless bones. Right? We're not appendix we don't discover what those things are for yet. We are, we are bones that are needed, right? You're needed. We need each other. We're a part of the body. Bones are a part of a skeleton, and bones have a specific place and purpose. So what the secret of life is to find out what that is and then be content with it no matter what it looks like. Just do what God's asked you to do, to be faithful. Number three, bones require inner life. They require inner life. Bones are filled with marrow. We know this, right? In order, in order for bones to work, they got to have inner life. 
If you need a bone marrow transplant, you need it quickly or else life will expire very quickly. Can I just say, do not think that your lack of devotions does not affect the body. Or do not think that your quiet, unassuming devotional life does not affect the body. Your devotions during the week actually makes all the difference for when we gather together on the weekends. What are you, what are you saying? Yeah, the fact that you're reading your Bible every day, the fact that you're speaking to God and praying on a daily basis, what that does is it actually provides inner strength that gives life to the body that you're a part of. The blood of the body is created in the marrow of the bones, among other places. We know that the marrow creates the blood. So in other words, your Bible reading this week that seems so unnoticed and so insignificant and so irrelevant is actually what's causing blood to flow through these veins of this local body. And if you don't be faithful to put yourself in a place of speaking, I call it a place of speaking. That just means a disposition where God can speak to you and life can flow through you. Then you actually are a dry, cracked bone that when you come together with us, we spend all of our time trying to marinate you rather than doing what God desires to do. So I'm not saying that we can't have weakness. I'm not saying that this is not the place for for corporate encouragement what i'm saying though is that you actually provide life to this body by your own devotional life bones require inner life they require sensitivity that's what makes sunday mornings work the the, the devotions make this gatherings work if you haven't read your bible in a bit then what happens is your bones get really really dry these bones in the valley were cracking and were drying out But I just want to say to you, for God's sake, and I use that term advisedly, for God's sake, seek God with your life. Read your Bible. Have a daily devotion. Do whatever it takes to get to a position of hearing from God for yourself. It matters, folks. It makes a difference. It makes such a big difference. Sometimes I may not feel like it. I don't know about you, but sometimes I wake up and I don't feel like reading my Bible. Sometimes I wake up and I don't feel like praying. But every day I wake up and I read and I study. Why? Because I'm a bone and a body and my devotion brings life to you. And if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, you don't receive what you're supposed to receive. This is why Achan's sin in Joshua 6 destroyed the whole camp. Because what we do affects one another. It does. Bones require inner life. And the inner life of your devotional life causes this body to start functioning. Blood starts flowing. People can come in and be healed. People can be touched. Get to that place of speaking. Some people say, I can't hear God. It's because you don't read God. Complaining about a silent God when your Bible's closed is like complaining about not getting a text when your phone's turned off. Right? I guess it don't make no sense. God wants to speak to you. He wants to speak continually. But when he speaks to you, he speaks to you through his word. He speaks to you as you gather with other believers. This is the way God speaks. Number four, bones need connections and connecting points. Right? All bones need connections. When Ezekiel prophesied, the the bones came together. Can I just say to us, our relationships are fundamental, aren't they? Our relationships. In this busy world we live in where people rush to and fro to make more money, follow their kids around, sports, jobs, you have to be intentional about your relationships because I know for most people, the, the first thing that disappears from their life is depth of relationship because of the busyness of life. Right? Busy life leads to dysfunctional relationships because we're just so far moving to and fro all the time, right? That's why Jesus said this after washing the disciples' feet in John 13, 34, and 35. He said, this new command I give to you. Notice this. Love one another. As I've loved you, you're going to love one another. And by this, the whole world's going to know you're my disciples. If you love one another, that means you have to be intentional about loving people, don't you? You have to be intentional about loving people in your church. Uh, many of you know Reinhard Bonnke. He's the greatest... Uh, Greatest evangelist of all time. I would think that he's, he's probably 
numerically greater than the Apostle Paul. I would think he's probably the greatest evangelist that the world's ever seen in terms of numbers. Uh, he, he leads a ministry called Christ for All Nations, and you've probably seen the images where he goes to Logos, Nigeria, and he has crusades, three and four million people. It's not an oddity to see 750 to a million people saved per night, right? And um, greatest evangelist. And a few years ago, he handed off his ministry to a new CEO, CFO, which is an amazing story, by the way. A guy that's only a year older than me, his name is Daniel Kalinda. He's 31. And Daniel serves on a board that I serve on, um, with Empower 21, it's a, it's a global ministry, but, but I was, uh, two, two falls ago, I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma at ORU for the meeting with our, our team before, before this big meeting we had in Jerusalem, and Daniel Kalinda was there at the meeting, and so I just got a lunchtime with him, and as I was talking to him, I said, uh, I said so tell me how your planners go in and, and, and build these crusades, and he said, oh yeah, okay, so if you're a family, like you and your wife, your kids, you would, uh, we were gonna do Logos, Nigeria in December, then you and your family would move there right now and you would spend six months on the ground planning for the crusade and when Reinhardt gets off the plane in December, you would leave and go to another city and stay six months and do nothing but plan. I said, that's pretty amazing, that much work. But he, I said, what do these people do for friends? And that's like always picking up. You never have a true, like, stable life for your kids. I said, what do these people do for friends? And he said, oh, no big deal. He said, I make them. And I said, what do you mean? He said, our planners get on the ground and they land in the city that they're doing the crusade and they say, I only have six months and I know how desperately I need a church. I know it. I know how desperately I need friends, and I know how desperately my kids need a local context. And I said, well, what do they do? He said, oh, it's easy. He says, the moment they go into the city, they pick a church, they choose a church. That Sunday, they walk in. The first Sunday they're there, they look around, they find seven couples. And they pick those seven couples, and when church service ends, they go and invite each of those seven couples over to their house for the next seven following nights. He said, at the end of the week, we pick two couples out of the seven, and we become friends with them. And he said, now our planners have friends all over the world. And I thought, that is the most spiritual thing. I've ever heard because we in Western Christianity are saying, well, how many sit here every week? No one likes me. I don't have any friends. Nobody's called me. I'm like, get over yourself. Find some other couples. Be intentional. Reach out beyond yourself and do something with people. Be intentional. You need connection points. You need connectors. You need to be connecting with other bones. In fact, you're robbing yourself of destiny by not being connected. You are isolating yourself and raging against all wise judgment. And they'll notice these people, their, their lives now have friends around the world because they took intentionality to connect with people. That's about the most spiritual thing American Christians can do. Just come in and connect. Find some intentional relationships and say, we're connecting. We're opening up. We're going to have the currency of relationships and currency of trust in our lives. Why? Because we need a family. We need a home. We need friends. Make them. That's why he said in Proverbs 8, 24, 18, 24, a man that makes friends has to show himself friendly. We need it. Fifthly and finally of bones. I could spend an hour on each of these points. Bones are hidden in the body. Bones are hidden in the body. Now, if you look at Ezekiel 37, 8, it's amazing. The Bible says that when Ezekiel looked, tendons and flesh appeared to them and skin covered them. Skin enveloped the bones. You know what that means? We are bones, right? And we're to be hidden in the body. That means Christianity is not this thing of look at me, look at me. Am I special? Look at me. We're only highlighting one person in Christianity. His name's Jesus. We're lifting up high Jesus Christ. It's not saying, look at me, pick me, pick me, look over here. No, just hush up, sit down, and get covered in the body. Just dissolve into the body. You don't need a name. Just, just, just get in the body and just start serving. Just start. Why? Because bones are hidden inside the body. We're just a bone, for goodness sakes, right? Or another biblical analogy, you could say you're just a stick. John 15, I am the vine, Jesus said, and you are the 
sticks. You're the branches. And he said, my father is the vine dresser. You know what that means? Our job in life is to bear fruit. That's all we're to do. We're sticks that bear fruit. And let me tell you something. Fruit always gives glory to the vine, not the stick. You never look at an apple tree and say, oh, man, those are beautiful apples. Good job, branches. Amazing. Amazing job, buddy. Come on. Let's all put it up, hands together for the branches. You know, you, you, you always, as fruit, give glory to the vine, not the sticks, not to the branches. That's how fruit works. And notice this. Without Jesus and without fruit, you and I are a dead stick. That's all we are. We're just a stick on the ground. Are you with me? The purpose of bearing fruit, why? Is it for you to eat? Any branches ever eat fruit? Nope. It's for the buyer and the person around them to eat the fruit. The purpose of bearing fruit, what? Is for the benefit of other people's blessings and the investment into another generation. That's why we are as a church called to bear fruit. That other people would be blessed. That all nations would be blessed through the church. Come on, Genesis 12, 1. Abraham, I'll make you great. Why? So you'll be great? No. So you can be a blessing to all nations. If we shut down right now, would our city say, oh, we were a blessing or we a curse? I think most of them say the churches are cursed. We're called to be a blessing. We're called to bless other people. We're called to touch other people, to invest in another generation. That's who we are called to be as a church. The branch never benefits from the fruit. The only job of the branch is to get it really, really fat so more of the life of the vine can flow through it to bear greater fruit. That's my job as a Christian. Get really, really fat so Jesus can multiply his life through me. Get really, really big so the vine and the Holy Spirit can flow through my life to produce fruit that generations ahead can taste. It's my job to bear fruit for my kids' kids. So you're a bone. But if it's just about bones and getting structures right and leadership and devotions and relationships, that's not good enough. That's just a skeleton. You'll be like the skeleton with no, no life. So there's the one extreme, bones. But we got to look at the other one, breath. Breath. Let me give you five quick qualities of breath. We need God to do something radical. Here's the breath of God. Number one, breath is in the hands of God. You've got to have a recognized sovereignty. What do you mean, Craig? Genesis 2 and 7, it says, God breathed life into Adam. It's God who breathes life into our bodies. I'm all about excellence. I'm all about church excellence. I'm all about what we do is excellent. But did you know what? You can be a guitar player, and you can have excellence in musicianship, but if you have no anointing in worship, you're a dead stick. You're a skeleton up here shaking with a pick in your hand. And you can have the voice of angels. You can be an amazing leader in a, in, a, in, a, in a whole skeleton. But if you don't have anointing and the breath of God, it's useless. It changes nobody. It brings no yoke-destroying anointing off of people's lives. Right? So we got to have breath. In other words, we got to pray like crazy. Don't be so professional that we're excellent in all that we do, but we don't have God turn up. We got to have God turn up or else we're just, we're pointless. We're useless. Nothing will change. Nothing will be transformed. I'm praying, God, if you don't show up in our church, God, if you don't show up today, then we've had it. I can't save people. I can't heal people. I can't even preach for goodness sakes. But you know what? It's not my job. My job is to point you to the person who can save. My, my job is to point marriages to, to, to the one who heals and restores marriage. Why? Because he alone is able. He alone is able to breathe life into dead places. When I was 16, man, God breathed life into my dead skeleton, and I never felt life before in all my life. All my existence, I never felt the life of God until that breath of God breathed in me. You know what I'm talking about. He takes the most dead things, and all of a sudden, resurrection power hits you. Breath is in the hands of God. God chooses fools. Let me tell you, I was trying to get it work today. My first sermon when I was 18, it was horrendous. I'll show it to you one day. 
Horrendous. I, folks, I'm not talking about bad. I'm talking about horrendous. And when I got done preaching, God said, Ooh, I finally found a candidate. He is terrible, and I'll get all the glory. I finally found somebody that I can use because I'm going to use the, 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 the simple things to confound the wise. Think about it. God only makes something out of nothing, so if you think you're something, he can't use you. But if you know you're nothing, you're empty, you're impotent, you're not able to do nothing, you feel like you're, you feel like you're unqualified, God said, Woo, found somebody. There we go. Now I'm going to get some glory out of somebody's life. Why? Because there's going to be a trophy of my grace that I heal and I redeem and I restore and I put my spirit in. Then I'm going to give them an, an influence in Christ, and then they're going to speak and share my love. And then on one day in history, I'm going to put them up on the, on the mantle of the fireplace of heaven and say, this is a trophy of my grace that points to me and gives me all glory. Why? Because breath is in the hands of God. If he doesn't breathe, we don't live. We don't live. Breath is in the hands of God. Number two, breath is a sign of life. If you're a biologist, you know biologists say there are eight signs of life. I won't hit them all. One of them is movement. If you only need other people to move you and you don't move yourself, you're dead. You know another sign of life? Reproduction. If this church stops reproducing itself, it's dead. Are you with me? If we re stop reproducing disciples for Jesus, we're dead. It's a sign of infertility. And there's no such thing as an infertile, barren Christian in the New Testament. It's reproduction. You know what another sign of life is? Excretion. Y'all didn't know y'all get a biology lesson today. Have you ever seen a dead body go to the toilet? I've yet to see one in a funeral get up and go use the bathroom yet. So you know what that means? If I have to persuade you to get rid of sinful toxin in your life, there's no life there. Because if you feel alive, you'll get rid of sin. You excrete. If you're alive, you get rid of sin. If you're alive, you turn from sin. Why? Because you're living. You're living, you're excreting, you're sweating, you're using the restroom, so to speak, spiritually. You're getting rid of the sinful toxin in your life. And I'm going to tell you something. God wants this place to be so vibrant, so full of life, to reproduce itself, to excrete. He wants us to, to, to literally do all the things that living beings do. Why? This is a vast army he's trying to create. He's trying to create people who are able to fight and to see the kingdom of God advance. And that means that church is to be messy, incidentally. If this place is a nice clinical place, we've missed the point and if you look around and you're so religious you only want nice people to sit next to you or people that look like you you have missed the point jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a net you got some good fish and you got some really really bad fish and so if you don't have some bad fish sitting around you every now and again then you're probably not living this church should be filled with very messy people this church should be filled with people who need a place of grace why because we're living we're living. It's a vast army. Number three, breath cannot be seen, can it? What are you saying, Craig? Don't put all your eggs into the basket that can be seen. Faith is the evidence of things not. Second Corinthians 4.18, don't fix your eyes on what is seen because what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. Now notice this, folks. What I'm saying is you have to be able to come into a church like this and see beyond the bones the things, the structures. You have to be able to come into a meeting and see what God is doing and perceive what God's doing. You say, Craig, is that scriptural? Yeah, go read Acts 14. I came across that again this last week. It was a little, really phenomenal because Peter walks into the church service and the Bible says he saw that the man had faith to be healed and I thought, oh my God, he didn't have to even talk to the dude. He had the ability, perception, to see that a man had faith to be healed. 
I ought to be able to walk into a room like this and say, God, what are you doing here? And then let me get involved in it. Not, God, would you do this for me? But, God, what are you doing here? Let me proceed. Isn't that what it means to be living? Breath cannot be seen. In other words, it, it, it can't be seen, but it is seen eternally. You've got to be able to perceive and see beyond what is the bones and say, man, there's breath here. There's no breath here. I've got to have the ability to perceive what God is doing. That's why he said to follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Let me give you number four. Breath is uncontainable. If you contain breath, guess what it stops being? Breath. The word for breath or spirit in the, the, the Bible is called pneuma. It means wind, pneuma, pneumonia, disease of the breath. Have you ever thought about this? This is a back door to the outside of our building. If I open that door right there and then I open those two double doors and then I open the front door, I could create a draft and the wind could blow through this place. Really could. And we'd get a wind. You know the way to stop that wind? Not to rebuke it, stand up on the front of the bow of the boat like Jesus and say, wind, stop. Here's all you gotta do. Close the door, close the doors, close the door. The moment wind is contained, it is no longer wind. The Holy Spirit is like wind. The moment he's contained, he's no longer able to do what he does in your life. You've got to understand this a minute. John chapter 3, verse 8. This is what he says. Jesus said, everyone who's born of the Spirit, he is the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from. You can't tell where that thing is going. If we're going to be Spirit-filled people, let me go ahead and tell us. There are times in our life where we're going to have to hoist up the sail and let the wind of the Spirit blow us where he wills. You can't have a five-year, 10-year, 15, 20-year plan. Sometimes you've got to be willing to say, God, wherever you wind, wherever the wind blows, God, it's uncontainable. I don't want to try to put a box on it. I don't want to try to say you can only do this. I don't want to limit you. I don't want to limit you with vexing you, oh God, and limiting me with my limited thing. God, I want, I want to be uncontainable. We shouldn't be people who put God in little boxes, and we shouldn't be people who are so predictable. Yes, ordered. Yes, connected. Yes, structured. But when it comes to the breath of God, there has to be a predicted unpredictability about God's church. We aren't quite sure what God will do next. That's what it means to have a living, dynamic God. He's unpredictable. He's always doing things that are surprised. He'll never do anything you think he's going to do. He'll do something greater than what he, you thought he's going to do, but it'll never be the way you thought he would do it. Why? Because the wind wants to blow. He wants to blow through the caverns of your heart. And so many people in American churches just sit there and close off every cavern and say, oh, why ain't the wind of God doing it? Because you don't have a draft. You've closed off your heart. You've closed off parts. You've boxed God in. And God says, you have to open. Why? God's trying to do something new and so unpredictable in your life, but you only keep praying for things that you know to look for. And God says, I can't do that, and I don't desire to do that. I want to be unpredictable, and I want to do something that you can't predict, something that you don't know, something that, that looks different than what you've seen before. This is what the wind of God is. Don't, don't, don't let us sit here in arrogance and tell God what he's going to do. He wants to do something greater in Woodstock than you and I could ever imagine. So let's just say, God, wind, blow. Blow wherever you desire. Do whatever you want to do. Use me however you want to use me, God. I'm open, and I'm willing to be used. Breath is uncontainable. When I was a kid, I used to sleep on the trampoline. Y'all ever do that when you're kids? We get under our sleeping bags, put the head, the top over so the dew wouldn't soak us. One night about two in the morning, one of them summer storms came in, and I woke up, and I got up to use the restroom over in the grass, and I walked back over, and the wind started blowing, and my, my sleeping bag looked like a sail, parasail. The wind got in it, and it started flying across the deal. And here I am like an idiot at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm holding the end of that sleeping bag running through my backyard. And all of a sudden, about 10 minutes into it, the thought hit me. 
Come on, you ignoramus. All you got to do is close the end and it stops being wind, right? And that's what God does. He wants us to be able to blow and do whatever he wants, but we just keep on closing the end. We keep on making the breath containable and the breath stops being breath. Just allow God to blow the way he wants to blow. And then fifth and finally, breath is in the mouth of man. Now that seems contradictory to point one, doesn't it? Point one says breath is in the hands of God, but breath is in the mouth of man. Once you've understood God is the author of breath, your job is to prophesy. That's the balance or the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Would God cause these bones to live regardless? Yes, but he didn't want to. He wanted to cooperate with a man named Ezekiel. So he said, you prophesy to the breath. I'm the only one that can give the breath, but I want you to open your mouth and use your breath to prophesy to that breath. God was going to do this work, but he wanted Ezekiel's cooperation. God is going to do the work here, but he wants the cooperation of the people of God. God wants us to prophesy. He wants you to prophesy into your life. He wants you to prophesy into your family. He wants you to prophesy into your school. He wants you to prophesy into your neighborhood. He wants you to prophesy to your children. He wants you to prophesy to your street. Prophesy over it. He said, son of man, prophesy breath. Listen to me. When the will of God is not known, you should pray about it. But when the will of God is known, you should prophesy and stop praying. And start prophesying and saying, God, it's revealed. It's not your will that any should perish. So I'm praying and prophesying my son will be born again. My son will be redeemed. Why? Because you know that's his will. And he says to Ezekiel, prophesy, son of man. Stand up on your feet and prophesy. You say, Craig, that's weird. What is prophecy? He said in Revelation 22, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. All prophecy is, is simply testifying to what Jesus said about a situation. If Jesus said it's not his will that any should perish, you don't have to pray that God and his will are not to save your family. You stand up and you start prophesying. Jesus, you're standing in heaven right now, and you're saying my son's redeemed. You're standing in heaven right now, and you're saying he's washing the blood. So I'm declaring, God, I prophesy life into my son. God, I prophesy life into my marriage. God, I prophesy life into my street. God, it's not my will, your will, that I should be uh, walking in, in disease and sickness. It's by your stripes I'm healed. So stop praying about it and start prophesying. Lord, I know your revealed will. Your revealed will is that I would walk in hell. Your revealed will is that you took 39. Man, I just believe God's looking for a people who have the righteous, the Bible says, effectual, fervent prayer of righteous men avail much. Not, God, I know I'm not worthy to be here. God, if you'll just hear my clumsy little, my little pesky prayers, you know, that won't avail anything. But when you stand up to God and say, God, I think that I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I used to be nobody, but you baptized me in your love, and now I have the boldness and authority to come to you right now in the throne of grace and obtain mercy and help in a time of need. And when my son does that, when my son has confidence in my character to provide for him, you better believe I'll do whatever I got to do to provide for him. When he comes to me with full assurance and confidence that his daddy loves him and his daddy's good to him and his daddy only has plans to prosper him, that makes my heart smile. And this is our God. He says, prophesy, son of man. I will do it anyways. Ezekiel, I want to blow your mind. You ready, brother? Let me pick you up and take you into this battle. I want you to prophesy breath. And the Bible said that the bones began to rattle. The bones began to come together. But notice, it still had no breath in it. Which tells me noise is not a sign of life. I feel like sometimes we come to churches and a lot of noise. And a lot of cool worship, but there's still no breath in it. And it's not until breath gets in it that something starts changing. It's not until God breathes into it. And the Bible says he breathed and prophesied breath and the bones then were covered in skin and the life of God filled them. Folks, don't ever end up a half person in a bucket. 
in a box in the back of a chemistry room. Don't you allow yourself to go into the grave or go into the casket one day and you look like a a, a skeleton, a half skeleton in a box that has all the dream of God still resident within you. Let the life of God breathe balance into you. Open up your heart and the caverns of your heart and let him breathe fresh destiny and purpose in you. And when you do, you'll end up being a person full of vitality, person with great internal strength and vibrant external power. It's bones and breath bones and breath breath and bones there's so many funerals i've done standing right here not literally right here but right here and the casket's in front of me and i want to do everything in my power to speak about the dreams and destiny and contribution that person's made but all i can do is speak words of comfort to the family because the reality is their diet is a half skeleton but no life And God says, in the last days, I'll pour up my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. I long for the day when I'm an old man sitting back here doing what I'm doing, mentoring and leading young leaders. And I sit back and I watch sons and daughters that I saw be born into this congregation that are standing up and prophesying truth. And God's using the prophetic declaration of their lips to change a generation. I long, God, pour out your spirit and let sons and daughters prophesy. Lord, we'll give place to it. We'll give credence to it, Lord. And then he said the young men will see visions and the old men will dream dreams. And so many of us in the room, maybe, maybe we've gotten to a place in life where our, our memories begin to out, outweigh or exceed our future ambition. And when we do that, we're dying. We've got to allow our future ambition and what God's calling us to do to be greater than the memories of our past. That God, you steal. The greatest days of my life are yet to be lived. You've called me on the earth. I'm a part of a body. I'm a bone and a body. I need your breath. And God, do something this year that I've never seen before. Don't end up a half skeleton. Be a living soul. Nefesh. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to ask the band to come. And as you do... Could you just stand with me all across this room, if you don't mind? As your heads are bowed, I know we're coming to a close here. But would you just stand all across this room? And I just want to pray. And our team is going to lead a song as we conclude here. But I want to respond to the Lord in worship and ask that breath of God to breathe into people's souls, to breathe into their hearts. Maybe there's people in here that that you feel so hopeless about a situation. It just takes one breath of God of hopeful hope that God would breathe hope into hopelessness and perspective changes. Maybe there's such faithlessness about a particular situation. I'm going to tell you that God can just in one breath breathe faith into faithlessness. But what can't happen according to John 3 is for us to receive true life transformation apart from the supernatural power of God. He said, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus is confused and want to be going to my mother's womb. You can't produce divine change with human effort. That's what I want to say. You only produce divine change with divine effort, with divine help. He said, it's not by might nor power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's only by his spirit. The vitality and vibrancy flows in our lives and then we we leave this place and we can have different perspective about whatever it is we're facing and I'm just asking today Holy Spirit would you breathe upon your people again thanks so much for listening to this week's message if you would like more information about our church be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org God bless you